Welcome to The Waves, Slate's podcast about gender, feminism, and today, likability and female antiheroes. Every episode, you get a new pair of women to talk about the thing that we cannot get off of our minds. And today, you've got me, Daisy Rosario, Senior Supervising Producer of Audio here at Slate. And I will be talking to the hilarious and brilliant Jenna Friedman. Jenna is a comedian, writer, and director. She's worked on The Daily Show with Jon Stewart and The Late Show with David Letterman. She's also the creator of AMC's Indefensible and Soft Focus with Jenna Friedman on Adult Swim. Or you may have seen her stand up on Conan. I don't think violence is ever the answer, but I do think we need to do a better job at making Nazis feel less safe to be Nazis in America and espouse their ideology and recruit other Nazis because that doesn't really ever work out for anyone who's not a Nazi <laughs> or for Nazis. Thank you. <laughs> It doesn't work out for Nazis either. Like, it's not like they won, you know? So here's my advice. Um, If you see a Nazi on the street, don't punch him, but maybe lightly harass him. (laughs) Catcall him. Tell him to smile. If any Nazis work for you, pay them less. Take credit for their ideas. Except that one. (laughs) Jenna has a new book out called Not Funny, Essays on Life, Comedy, Culture, Etc. The book is smart and very funny, despite the title. And in it, she writes about some of her experiences trying to get abortion jokes onto late night television, as well as what it's like to be live on CBS with Stephen Colbert on election night 2016. So, of course, one of the themes that comes up a lot in her book is this idea of likability, of women having to be liked to be able to achieve even minor successes, which is why I thought she would be a great person to talk to about female antiheroes. I'm talking about the women we are supposed to root for even when they lack the qualities that would usually make a woman, quote, likable. Men have always been allowed to be both a hero and unlikable, but for women, that combination is still a challenge, though the last 10 years or so has offered us more female antiheroes than any I have previously witnessed. Whether it's fictional characters like Phoebe Waller-Bridge's Fleabag or a superstar like Rihanna, there has been more room in popular culture for women to win while not being nice. We're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, I'll be joined by comedian Jenna Friedman to talk about female antiheroes. Hey, Waves listeners, if you're loving the show and want to hear more, subscribe to our feed. New episodes come out every Thursday morning. And while you're there, check out other episodes, too, like last week's about the medical mysteries that plague women. Welcome back to The Waves. I'm now joined by Jenna Friedman, comedian and author of Not Funny. Jenna, welcome to The Waves. Thank you for having me. I really loved reading your book, Not Funny, and you end up talking so much about the concept of likability. What is likability to you? (laughs) It's this thing that is totally subjective, that is kind of like an amorphous concept that has haunted my personal career and possibly the careers of uh, friends of mine. I 
was never able to pin down or be able to conquer. But at some point, and it was around when I turned 30, I stopped caring about likability. And I think that that makes you likable. (laughs) (laughs) I think it's like a very gendered uh, word. It's always there as a woman, though, for sure. Absolutely. Yeah. Having both of us done stand up, it's that thing of when you go on stage, likability is almost everything. I remember working so hard on writing clever jokes and then seeing a guy comic who had no jokes just get on stage and improvise uh, and people loved him. And I remember thinking at one point, wait a minute, but I, but my jokes are like structurally better. <laughs> Why am I not getting the laugh that he's getting? And it's likability, charisma, star power. There are all these kind of words for it. But then when you're doing stand-up, you know, you're really, it's really on display. I don't know if it's even on display as much in any other like facet of, you know, our society as it is when you get up in front of strangers and try to make them laugh. You seemed really less interested in writing about it from the perspective of like, I'm a woman comedian and more like this happens to women in every situation. It, it is maybe more pronounced and you have to actually sit with it because it's so in your face being a comedian because you literally are getting up on stage with just you and a microphone in a way that is very different than maybe like you were in a meeting or just various aspects of life. But it is so true that pretty much all women have to deal with this. Yeah. And there is like a definite privilege to being a comedian And having people even care about what we do. And so I did really want to acknowledge that it's not just about us. And I think the book is, it's a memoir, but my goal was to make these things I'm talking about to like tap into something more universal because, you know, I could have be working in any industry and have similar issues, but people might care less about like the travails of a management consultant (laughs) dealing with sexism. Absolutely. Well, that's one of the reasons like we, I'm so excited to talk to you about your book, but also wanted to talk to you about kind of this idea of likability and anti-heroes, women who are anti-heroes in pop culture, in our culture at large. You worked for somebody who was, let's say, at a certain point for a period of time, probably one of my absolute favorite women anti-heroes in like American history, and that's Roseanne Barr. But I want to be very clear, I am talking about 90s Roseanne, uh, because I am also a woman of color. And so just, but I think people forget, and and I've had these conversations with people who do forget how subversive the original 90s Roseanne was, like how different it was to the other things at the time, and how much of that was Roseanne herself being this idea of an anti-hero, the person you're supposed to be rooting for, despite the fact that they are not traditionally likable or traditionally heroic. Roseanne very much was that on that show. Oh my gosh, I was supposed to give you this. What is it? It's a note from my history teacher, Miss Crane. You gotta meet with her at 3.15. Today? Uh-huh. Why do you always wait to the last minute to tell me these things? I've got a life too, you know. It's not like I don't have nothing to do. I'm sorry, what do you want me to do? Throw myself off a bridge? Yeah, and take your brother and sister with you. 
Yeah, I mean, and I want to be clear too that I worked for her for one day because the day that I worked for her was a day that she fired off that tweet. Yes. And let me just uh, explain the tweet in case anyone doesn't remember. Right as the reboot of Roseanne's show was being renewed, was being announced for its second season, Roseanne tweeted out a very racist tweet about Valerie Jarrett. Valerie Jarrett, you know, she's a black woman who had been part of the Obama administration, was well known as one of his, you know, closest aides. And she tweeted out just something very racist about Valerie Jarrett, which she denied. You know, she said, of course, that she didn't think it was racist, but it was and it was complicated. Roseanne ended up getting, you know, asked to leave the show. They changed the show to The Connors, which is actually still on the air now. When the opportunity came about to even write for Roseanne, it just it was so unexpected and and exciting, even though she had had one season of the reboot and she was kind of Trumpy. I really do have this like theory, which maybe it's problematic, but just the idea that like if you're not at the table, you're on the menu. And to write for a Trump supporter on one of the most watched shows, the most watched comedy show at the time, while Trump was in his first year of office, I was just so excited for that opportunity. And part of it was because I I was a huge fan of her show in the 90s. And I wanted to try to bring the like the best aspects of that back to this reboot and I think everybody in there wanted that and and it was at a time we're even worse now but we were so divided and people within each other's families were divided and to show that in a way that isn't as like politically fueled as a late night comedy show but to kind of connect to people connect to Americans through stories uh, is so critical in, in bridging the divide. And I just even I haven't thought about it in so long. And like, you know, promoting the book and talking about it now and remembering what it felt like. I really would have loved to see that show exist. But I also at the same time, I think, obviously, you know, it was a pretty dumb and racist tweet. And you got to be held accountable for the things that you do. Yeah. What did you like about the 90s version of Roseanne? I mean, she confronted race head on. The episode where DJ, uh, he didn't want to kiss the black girl or something. There was like that whole episode. Does she have bad breath? Does she have a mustache? Does she have a whole bunch of extra arms or something? Son, no matter what it is, you can tell us. Is it because she's black? It is, isn't it? Well, you'll be mad if I say yes. No, we won't. Yes, we will. (laughs) I didn't raise you to be some little bigot. I just don't want to kiss her. Hey, black people are just like us. They're every bit as good as us, and any people who don't think so is just a bunch of banjo-picking, cousin-dating, barefoot (laughs) embarrassments to respectable white trash like us. She confronted her own racism or her own ideas of like discomfort around race, like head on. There were black characters that were fully formed. They weren't just tokenized. I mean, there were issues about class. There were issues like domestic violence with Jackie. I mean, all these issues that are so uh, at the forefront of, you know, what we're talking about in our society. She just confronted them in such a powerful way. And people watch. And I just, stories really, I do think, can't have the power to 
connect us back to each other from our political divides. A show like that, that with a with a unlikable heroine at the helm of it, who has skepticism and trust from quote unquote both sides, I think would have been really impactful um, in the current moment that we're in. We're going to take a quick break here, but if you want to hear more from Jenna and myself on another topic, check out our Slate Plus segment, where today we're talking about Jenna interviewing famous male comedians like Jon Stewart using the same questions that she gets asked as a woman in comedy. And please consider supporting the show by joining Slate Plus. Members get benefits like zero ads on any Slate podcast, no hitting the paywall on the Slate site, and bonus content of shows just like this one. To learn more, go to slate.com forward slash the waves plus. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. All right, we are back with Jenna Friedman. Talking about antiheroes and likability or unlikability in women. One thing that has been interesting to me about the last few years, even as I feel that we are backsliding as a society, has been that I'm also being met with like entertainment and popular culture that is still more welcoming to some of these characters. Like, I can't imagine having had Fleabag um, earlier. Come on. They're probably going to think we're a couple. The fact that your mind even goes there is beyond disturbing. Hey, we'd make a really cute couple. <sighs> Slots! Yes? Or even just the way that Annalise Keating on like how to get away with murder is a really intense and bizarre character, but not likable. Good morning. I don't know what terrible things you've done in your life up to this point, but clearly your comments out of balance to get assigned to my class. I'm Professor Annalise Keating, and this is Criminal Law 100, or as I prefer to call it. How to get away with murder. I feel so aware that when I was growing up, something like Roseanne sticks with me so much because it was such a breath of fresh air and it felt so real compared to what else I was seeing. But in general, we've had so much more popular culture that has let women be antiheroes, if you will. And I'm wondering if you have any favorites, things that you've really enjoyed or find yourself watching that have been you know, some of the more refreshing things to you in these last many years. Absolutely. You know, I talked about pooling Sharon Horgan's show on, uh, I think, a, an interview with Vulture, but that was one of the first things that I saw where I saw this unlikable protagonist just really thrive and something that I really related to. But when we were growing up, I think part of the reason that you didn't have this is just because there were 
so fewer outlets. Uh, the gatekeepers were, you know, predominantly men, uh, white men. I think about Les Moonves all the time. And I think about designing women and people don't talk about this, but like Les Moonves sexually assaulted his doctor who was a woman. <laughs> There's like a bad joke there about like, what, he sexually assaulted a man? No, the doctor was a woman. But um, people like that who were in such positions of power, greenlighting content, if like you can't even hold it together to not assault your doctor. Like you can't, you can't be in a room alone with your doctor. How are you going to put feminist content on television for people to see? You're just not. It's just never going to happen. And so as much as, you know, uh, this current moment feels very, very scary with AI, yada, yada. Uh, as much as we're all kind of looking back on the internet and being like, was it really worth it? Like, is this, this is like social media really worth it? It's not, I don't think. But the one good thing that I think it did was it dismantled some of the gatekeepers. It opened up platforms for there to be more opportunities and chances on marginalized creators or female creators. And, um, and then we're seeing shows like, you know, I saw pulling on Netflix because Netflix had bought that BBC show was canceled after season two. Fleabag was, I think, on Amazon because Amazon was getting into streaming content and it was like, here it was, right? And it was like kind of the first time, you know, they're taking chances on these shows that historically people wouldn't have taken chances on. So were there always like women clamoring to write content about unlikable female protagonists? Sure, of course. Um, but did we get to see it? No. So I do think that the streaming boom has, you know, lifted a ton of voices and, and, and exposed them to us that we would never would have gotten. That is like the one positive, I think, in this current moment. Yeah. I mean, I think when I think of these, seeing these characters, whether it's a flea bag or, um, you know, a show like Killing Eve, which you could say has you know, two antiheroes, two women who are antiheroes, there is still parts of life that they are dealing with that their male counterparts don't have to as much, right? Like, so for example, I'm thinking of like a Tony Soprano or a Walter White uh, versus a Fleabag, right? Like both of those characters obviously do have a lot of home troubles <laughs> as well. But even then, like the, like Fleabag's story is so still so much more based on us seeing this person living with the consequences of their actions, but how the fact that those actions aren't inherently likable, like affects their genuine day to day, not just, you know, their role as like the head of a mafia family or like a secret meth king. And so even as I was looking, like getting ready for this conversation and kind of revisiting a lot of the female antiheroes I've really thought were interesting over the last few years, I still found myself going like, oh, but it, there is still this like other layer that these characters are having to deal with. I think that because maybe we wouldn't be able to watch them otherwise in the sense of like, I would think that that was te terribly unrealistic. Maybe I would be distracted by that if they weren't acknowledging some of the structural issues. But Eve on Killing Eve is not liked for her actual personality and the way she treats people interpersonally and that's like an issue in her job Oi! are you serious i have backed you for over 10 years now i'm asking you to see it from my perspective for five minutes you literally run away i'm getting chocolate oh yeah your blood sugar's low yeah oh good because I thought you were just being a monkey dick about not being the boss. I don't know what a monkey dick is. Oh, yes, you do.
I mean, maybe they're anti-heroes or anti-heroines, or they're just more fully formed. Because it's like, you know, Walter White and Tony Soprano are anti-heroes. They are, one is a mob boss, one is like a meth king. But like with these women, are they just like multidimensional? Are we so used to seeing female characters written as like two-dimensional supportive roles for male characters that we see them as an anti-hero? Because like Roseanne, is Roseanne an anti-hero? Or was she just like a working class mom trying to hold it together and like keep her family going even killing eve i mean like villanelle she's definitely an anti-hero she, she's an assassin right so she's definitely but eve is just doing her job so eve is really just like a fully formed i mean like just like a more nuanced depiction of a woman and, and maybe we're just not used to seeing so many depictions of women in media have been like so airbrushed or sanitized in so many ways that when you see a woman who is remotely unlikable, which we all are if you have a camera on us or like, you know, all human, no human is like perfect and only positive, you know, but because we're so used to seeing women depicted in a certain way that when we see them with a little more nuance or a little more, I guess, I don't want to say negativity or whatever you want to call it, we think of that as an anti-hero. <laughs> right. But it makes me think of how many people have spent the last few years being like, oh my God. Carrie Bradshaw on Sex of the City was actually terrible. Yeah, she and I was. was. Like, <laughs> yeah, and I'm also like, I don't know that I was ever not like supposed to not know that, but I think, you know, part of it was like, oh, we're so starved for characters that, you know, then it first becomes like, oh, like we want to see ourselves in it. I mean, I don't think Sex in the City is any more unrealistic, I guess I would say, than like Entourage, but they got treated very differently. What? All right, who's going to tell her? What? Honey, you're obsessed with talking about Big, and frankly, we can't take it anymore. It's out of our league. What is this, an intervention? Yes, stop her before she obsesses again. Isn't part of the whole breaking up process that you get free reign to whine to your friends? Of course you do. But maybe you should think about whining to a shrink. Why should I pay someone when we can talk for free and then go get a drink or whatever? Yeah, I mean, you're just, you're starting out at like negative 50 or whatever on some imaginary scale as a woman like I don't even know a woman who is the most likable I would say Michelle Obama <laughs> like I'm like I'm like who is a woman and that's a real person um she's also hated by certain segments of the country not Martha Stewart I'm like who are these like iconic female characters who just like everybody likes or loves I can't even name one. And then once you do, then there's a backlash to them. Like, I think it's just almost, no matter what you do as a woman in the spotlight, you just aren't going to be liked. So at a certain point, it's like, why even try? And I think there's freedom in that. And people who get you will get you, or people who, you know, care will care. And then the others just have to filter out the noise. But Whereas, like, with men, you know, you can do so many horrible things as a character or an actual person. You still get work. You're still kind of fine. I can name a thousand. I can just keep naming them. And then if I do, I'll get, like, trolled by an army of, like, Johnny Depp supporters. You know what I mean? But, like, there's just so many examples of, like, men are given the benefit of the doubt. Whereas, like, whatever the opposite to that is, I feel like it is often with women. And I don't want to sound like, all oh, I'm complaining about it because that's unlikable. I'm just thinking, like, in terms of talking about this and writing about it and then drawing female characters, I think it's empowering to start from a place of, like, who gives a fuck? Because they're going to, haters are going to hate. So just, you know, make whatever feels true to you. 
So one of the things that, you know, you write about in your book is kind of trying to get certain topics on air, particularly abortion. And this was an issue for you at more than one place. I mean, I am curious, like, what was on on your end? It feels obviously so related because, I mean, it doesn't sound, having heard your stand-up, having read your book, being familiar with your work, you know, it also seemed like something that you wanted to talk about because you were aware of it and it was a legitimate concern to you, not just because you're like, I'm trying to do something political per se. Even with the press that I am doing for the book, I know that there are like CBS. I mean, I was on Colbert, but like I won't be on other shows for CBS. I won't be on Good Morning America. I won't be on these shows because I talk about abortion jokes in the book. And for whatever reason, it's like a no-go zone for them. But now more than when I was writing on these late night shows, I mean, it is the fact that it's still taboo when women are literally dying because of policies that are completely politically motivated, completely not pro-life. And now the law of the land in many states. I mean, it's just bizarre that we that these topics are taboo because then when they're taboo and you don't get the people talking about them who have a right to talk about them, meaning women, (laughs) um, you end up letting politicians control the narrative. People are dying as a result. And yet like artists aren't allowed to, to talk about it on network television on certain platforms that women watch. I don't understand that. And a lot of my comedy stems from here's an issue I care about or here's something I'm afraid about. How can I sugarcoat it and make people give a shit too? That is like kind of how my career has gone. And so reproductive uh, autonomy is something I care deeply about. I, I started thinking about that part as you were saying, as you were asking earlier, like, are these anti heroines being, you know, written to be heroes that we don't necessarily easy want to root for, or are they being written more realistically? Because it seems to me like, yeah, if you're in a writer's room and you guys and and people are writing topical jokes about the Iraq war and stalls in Congress and different things like that, why does abortion still end up being harder for them to talk about when they are talking about all of these other political things? Because it's men. (laughs) Because the hosts of the show and the writers of the show. When I wrote for Letterman, it was the first time in his shows, I don't know, was it 30 year history or whatever it was? I don't, when one of the, I mean, from like late, late night with Dave Letterman and then late show, it was like from the 80s until like 2000, I think 11 when I was there. First time he ever had two female writers on staff at the same time. And for me, that was really liberating because if I would pitch something and people didn't find it funny and then Jill would pitch something and people didn't find it funny, I'd be able to be like, oh, it's not just that I'm not funny. <laughs> it's that maybe they're just like not into our sensibility. Um, I think it had like seven female writers before me and also Meryl Marco, who co-created the show. And was really her DNA is so much in the whole show. And I just remember, I remember getting in trouble for, I did, it was like a, a top 10 where why some women went crazy. And one of my top 10s were, it was just that time of the month. And they called me into the, to the head writer, the uh, head writers called me down to their office and were like, you have to just, they were looking out for me too, the Singles Brothers. They were like on my side, but they said, you have to remove this before we submit it to Dave because you could get fired for having, it was just that time of the month on your top 10 list. So that was a memo. I don't know if it was from Dave or his like 
many, many producers between. But that was like the message I got in the time that I was there. And I also, it was so shocking to me because over 50% of people who watched Late Night or at least Dave's show at that time were women. So it was interesting that it was men writing and greenlighting all this content. It's interesting that we all talk about Late Night and it's just a series of, you know, white guys. But I do think like, I do think Colbert and Kimmel have really risen to the occasion of this current moment and they do go there more than anyone else they do they they i mean i i was on colbert the other week and i cannot believe that he i had this joke that i told just for him that i thought he was going to cut and he didn't cut it he kept it and it was i was shocked by it steven's trying to make it all sweet and i'm about to launch into something that's a little dicey but um (laughs) sorry no no it's fine okay so um we when we found out that my husband was pregnant we decided to give the fetus a pet name, um, and because it's a fetus and not a person, and um, because my husband's last name is Epstein, naturally we named the fetus Jeffrey. <laughs> and I had a pregnancy app, and every week they would send me a new reminder, like. Jeffrey Epstein's the size of a kumquat. (laughs) It was so cute. And we named the fetus Jeffrey because I was 39 when I got pregnant, so a high-risk pregnancy. And if, God forbid, anything happened, we wanted to be able to say, well, maybe Jeffrey Epstein killed himself. (laughs) I mean, he's been so supportive. And I mean, I opened the book talking about being on his show on election night. And, um, And Kimmel, too, I think he's really the two of them have really like risen to this moment and are kind of the breath of sanity and fresh air among all the noise and really just like sticking their necks in a line to have these like political conversations. I remember like Kimmel, one of them was about healthcare. I thought that that was really cool that he just was outspoken about that. And I think that, you know, as a culture, we do look to comedians, fortunately or unfortunately, to kind of be the sanity in the um, insanity. Again, the book is called Not Funny, and it is by Jenna Friedman. Please go check this book out. You will enjoy it very much. It'll crack you up. Jenna, thank you so much for making the time for The Waves. Thank you so much for having me. This is great. That is our show for this week. The Waves is produced by Shana Roth. Alicia Montgomery is vice president of audio. We'd love to hear from you. Email us at thewavesatsleet.com. The Waves will be back next week. Different hosts, different topic, same time and place. Jenna, again, I loved your book. Everyone should read your book. It's called Not Funny. I will say it is definitely very funny. One of the things in the book that I very much enjoyed, you had this whole conversation. You 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 reached out to some of your kind of friends and men that you've worked with in comedy, and you asked them if they would be willing to kind of do an interview with you where you asked them the questions that you get asked as a woman in comedy. I want people to read that chapter. It cracked me up. Did I break out a highlighter? A couple of times, um, which I was not expecting. But but I wanted to hear just from you a little bit about like what that was like. And, and, and I'll help set some of this up. I wrote down what some of the questions are just to give our listeners an example. And we'll also talk about who these men were. You asked them questions as straightforward as, 
What's it like to be a man in comedy? When did you decide to become a male comedian? Was it hard to be a comedian back when you were starting out to be a male comedian? Do you think it has changed for men since you got into the business? Do you think men can be attractive and funny? Do you think men can be sexy and funny? And do you write your own material? This is in and of itself just a small portion of the questions that you asked, but you asked these questions to Jim Gaffigan, John Stewart, Fred Armisen, Patton Oswalt, Bob Odenkirk. I mean, just uh, Reggie Watts, um, a really wonderful array of men. What was it like for you just doing this as a process? I believe you did them both on the phone and via email. They're all friends. They knew the intent of what I was doing. So there was that to begin with. Uh, But it was still funny how even though they knew the premise, they knew it was for a book, there's a mutual trust there. It was still uncomfortable in some uh, regards. Uh, I remember Bob Odenkirk was so sincere and it kind of threw me and he was the first person that I talked to. And these aren't just questions that I got. I went on Twitter. I asked female comics what questions they've gotten. Uh, I went through articles where some of the most egregious questions that I ask, I, I put footnotes to just make sure people knew that they were real questions that we've gotten. I mean, I love these guys. So when I asked, you write your own material? And, you know, he's like so earnest about it. And I'm like, oh, I sound like an asshole. Yeah. But it was really fun. And uh, it was not so much enlightening because I, I, I had this show on Adult Swim that had a similar kind of idea of like teaching men what it's like to be a woman. And that that was, I mean... I really put these poor guys through the ringer so uh, on the Adult Swim show. So I, I wasn't like uh, shocked, shocked by, you know, the, the uh, process. It was also just nice to touch base and have an excuse to be like, hey, John, how are you doing? <laughs> uh, how's it going over there? That was just some of our Slate Plus segment. If you want to hear the whole thing, go to slate.com slash the waves plus to become a Slate Plus member today. Slate.com slash the waves plus.